Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Amen. Good morning. I wanted to start real quick. I know we've just prayed for it, but um, it's been in the news. Uh, we meet here in a synagogue, and uh, the last week's events have uh, been incredibly, incredibly terrible, terrific, uh, horrific, and... Um, I had the chance to speak to uh, Rabbi Ben this morning, and I just expressed to him that we were with them, that we support them, uh, that we love them, and that our thoughts and prayers are with them. So um, I was able to communicate that, and they were appreciative of that. So, um, you know, a lot, a lot going on in the world today, and uh, it seems like the uh, letter to the Ephesians is even more relevant than ever with uh, the powers that work in the world causing all this evil, and then people being in the position to uh, to bring light to the situation. So that's what our prayer is, that uh, this gets resolved and that, um, that things move forward positively with peace in the Middle East. So on that somber note, we'll start. Um, this morning will be a little bit more lighthearted than that, hopefully. Uh, I've titled uh, this sermon, Growing the Body to Fit the Head. Um, for those who have been with us for the last couple of months, we've been slowly reading through the book, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, which was a letter written to a people group halfway around the world 2,000 years ago. We're literally reading someone else's mail. And so when we do this, we have to recognize how strange it is. I mean, it'd be weird for you to pick up my mail and start going through it. There'd be things that you would totally understand, like our water bill and our electric bill and things like that. But then there'd be pieces of mail that you'd be like, what is going on here? What's this all about? Uh, it's a foreign, it can be a foreign and strange thing to read your friend's mail in the same country, in the same culture, in the same time period. We're talking about a group of people halfway around the world 2,000 years ago. And so one of the things that we've been doing to help ourselves remember this is we've been titling our sermons Funny Things to help us think about things in new ways and understand that uh, a lot's going on here. So last week we talked about uh, practical Unity, we talked about Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Um, and so today we're going to be building on a lot of what we said last week. Uh, we've talked about the five virtues in uh, Ephesians 4, 2. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and love. And how those uh, five virtues are essential to us maintaining the unity. Uh, we talked about how the seven ones here, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, that these were seven doctrinal pillars for them in Ephesus 2,000 years ago for them to all be unified and be uh, together, but that those no longer unify the larger Christian world. And so we have to be, I, I, I presented last week, that we have to be stronger in those five virtues uh, than even they did uh, to maintain the unity. So before we tackle our passage for today, I want to bring back the four themes we've been working through. Uh, the first one is that the, the letter to the Ephesians was written to a community, and it was written to a community that lived in a time period where they understood things in a more community-minded way. So every single you in this letter is plural, and so we've been reading them y'all. Now, I grew up in the South. That's very comfortable for me, but I did not get this because I, can't, I grew up in the South. We get this from Tim Mackey, a Bible scholar from the northwest part of the United States. Um, so that's where we've been reading uh, through here. The second uh, 
theme that we've been looking at is new creation and new order of things in Jesus. How this uh, apocalypse, this revelation, this encounter with Jesus that absolutely transforms our life. It helps us to see the world in a new way, see the truth clearly. And then the third and fourth things we've been looking at is unity in Christ and unity between heaven and earth. And then when we do see division, when we do see conflict, when we do see evil, it's because of what we've been calling the powers of the world. And the powers, as we'll get into a little bit today, the powers are um, anything that can change human behavior. So you think about, um, you know, certainly for those of us from a charismatic background, uh, think about angels and demons in this kind of context. You know, there are things that work in our lives and they present things to, to us and it, it changes our behavior. But there are also systems in place. There are economic systems in place. There are government systems in place. There are people that are sort of like the, the manifestation of these powers on earth. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. Uh, the president, the, the Caesars of the ancient world, the governors, um, even like in modern times, we can think of like clerks and police officers, people that enforce these rules are also part of these powers. Um, and then you, you can think about laws like, um, like tax laws or traffic laws. So all these things influence us. And when they divide us into things like racism and sexism or the conflict that we're seeing over in the Middle East, that's the powers at work. That's the forces uh, often of evil at work. And so when we see that division, the evil powers are at work. When we see unity, it's God's power at work, God's powers. You know, the angels, it's the people of God. It's the people working for unity and peace. So with that, with those sort of in the background, those themes in the background, our question for today is how do we grow the body to fit the head? <laughs> it's a weird way of asking a question this morning, isn't it? Let's begin by reading our section. I think you'll understand where we're going with it by the end, hopefully. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, We'll read verses 7 through 16. That's our passage for this morning. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself, in, builds itself up in love. So that's our passage for this morning. So last week, we talked about unity inside of the community, and that's one of the large themes we've just talked about. But I want to talk about verse 7 here for a minute. Let's, let's reread it here. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what verse 7 starts to do is it uses this word one in a different way than it's been using the word one in the rest of the letters to the Ephesians. Everywhere else it's been about us fitting in with this larger community. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, all those things. It's these big things and we figure out how we fit into those bigger things, right? But now it's calling out the individual. 
And so what this is doing is it's highlighting that there is diversity within this unity. There is, there is unity, but there's also diversity. And so um, Paul is not going to say that they uh, received the same gift of grace that he himself received. You know, he talks about earlier in Ephesians how he received a gift of grace that allowed him to be an apostle and to do the things that he was doing. He's not going to say, and you can do the exact same thing that God called me to do. We all have different ways of giving and serving. And so his gift of grace was unique to him. And so it was with everyone in this church 2,000 years ago. Each person had a unique gift, had a unique ability. And they all had, uh, they were unique in the gifts of grace that God gave them through Christ. And so we have unity and diversity or unity without uniformity. And there is beauty and power in people of different backgrounds, different personalities, uh, different strengths, different gifts coming together to worship God. And that's what our church is a microcosm is. And that's what a lot of churches uh, around the world is. That's a microcosm of what Paul's talking about here. So I want to point out that you just get through the seven ones and then the next one he uses is a different way of using the word one. He's sort of using it in a subversive way. Uh, to change the emphasis from the community to now to the individual a little bit more. Let's keep reading in verse 8. And this is probably the weird part of this passage, the weirdest part for us. Uh, Verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might all things. So um, this is sort of an interesting piece of the letter to the Ephesians is that there are only two Old Testament quotations in the entire letter. And if you know a lot about the Bible, you know that, for example, like the book of Romans has over 90 quotations and strong uh, allusions, uh, strong references to scripture in the letter to the Romans. And in Ephesians, this is the first of two. There are only two in the entire book. Um, And so how is it that we've made it three and a half chapters and we're just now getting our first Old Testament quote? Uh, It's it's sort of of strange. Um, But I think the other thing for us that's very strange is uh, he doesn't quote the Old Testament verse the way that we would have quoted it. And I want to put this on the screen for us. Um, In verse 8, it says, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But he's quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18, which I'm just going to quote the A part, which is what he's referencing here. And it says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, or receiving gifts in some translations, they'll say, from men. So in the original quote, you have, um, it's actually Yahweh, it's God, who is uh, a warrior king, and he's prevailing. We're going to talk a little bit more about the context here in a second. But he, when he prevails, he receives these gifts from men as he ascends. And when Paul comes to quote it, he's talking about, he's applying this to Christ, and he's saying, oh no, he's giving gifts to men. So what's going on here is Paul, did Paul just forget what Psalm 68 said? Or like, what, like what's going on here? And there's several theories about why Paul did it this way, but I want to share with you what I think is the best option. So like I said, um, the whole psalm, if you go read Psalm 68, uh, it, it, I'll just point out before we get into that, it's not the easiest psalm to read. It's not, I looked at the, some of the commentaries, it's not the easiest psalm to translate. There's a lot of words that are used in that psalm that are used 
only in that psalm or only very infrequently in Scripture. And so scholars are very divided on how all of it shakes out in Psalm 68. But the thing that everyone agrees on is it's a, it's a song of praise to God as a warrior king uh, throughout Israel's history. And what he's doing, what the psalmist is doing throughout the psalm is he's outlining all the ways that God has acted throughout the history of Israel. Um, and so he overcomes the powers, the evil forces in Egypt, and he brings them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Um, so, uh, and we've talked a little bit about the powers before, what the powers are. But in, in that time in Egypt, the powers were Pharaoh and that whole society that was built on the slavery of the Jewish people. And of course, it was the devil and the demonic authority behind that power. And so what God is uh, being praised for in Psalm 68 is him bringing his people out of, from under the slavery, out from under the powers. He's, um, he's saving them and he's giving them. Well, he's receiving gifts from them in this verse, but we'll find out he's also giving things to them as well. So the, the next thing I want to point out, and I, I've sort of already launched into this a little bit, is that uh, the writer is working through this, one of the most powerful images in the Old Testament, which is this picture of the Exodus. And so during the Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Uh, they served uh, a people that served other gods, so there was idolatry there. They were a victim of uh, the demonic. They were a victim of this whole regime that was oppressive. Um, and so during that Exodus story, God shows himself to be bigger than the powers through things like the plagues. And I don't know how much you know about the plagues, but each plague was targeted against a specific god of Egypt. There was a specific power that was being confronted and overcome through each one of those plagues. And so then the people of Israel leave Egypt behind. They leave their slavery and the darkness of the powers behind. But then they get to the sea. God leads them to the sea. And in, in my favorite view of the Red Sea crossing, which we don't know exactly where they went, but... I'm just going to give you my favorite version of it. And my favorite version of it, the topography is such where the people had water in front of them. They had like a, a wall of rock behind them. And there's only one path down from that wall of rock down to the water. And so when they see the enemy chariots approaching, it's like go back and get defeated by the Egyptian army or go forward and drown. Like those are the choices that they have in that moment in that Red Sea crossing. And that's when God parts the waters and they cross the water on dry land. Um, and so what I'm trying to point out here is, is that um, every single phase of this Exodus story that's being relayed uh, through Psalm 68, it's all about God triumphing over the powers, the powers in Egypt, uh, first of all. And then as the Israelites come into the promised land and the psalmist continues the psalm, there are other powers that get defeated, the different group, people groups that were in the promised land. Um, and so what we have throughout Psalm 68 is this view of God at work in and among his people and saving them from the powers of the world. And then I want to point out where the psalm ends. The psalm ends with God's people seeking him in the present. In the time that Psalm 68 was written, it was written at a time when the people of God needed his support. They needed him in their lives. And so they give him a petition based on all the things that we've already talked about in Psalm 68, about what they were going through. And so they, they seek him. They seek, and God responds to their seeking by giving power and strength to his people. So in Psalm 68, at the very end, it says in verse 34, 
Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. So that's how great God is. Verse 35, awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So in the middle of the psalm, the verse that Paul quotes here, uh, God is receiving all these gifts from men. But by the end of the psalm, what is God doing? He's giving gifts to men, and he's specifically giving two gifts. He's giving power, and he's giving, str- giving strength to his people. So what's going on with Paul's mind as he, as he is quoting this verse? Uh, to sum this up, this is what scholars call an echo. Paul's not quoting a verse, and he's certainly not doing it in a modern Western way that we would like, where he gives a, a verbatim quote, and then he interprets it the way that they would have interpreted it in the time of Psalm 68. That would be too easy if Paul did that for us, right? It'd be too, it'd be too straightforward. So what Paul is doing is what's called an echo. So Paul knows Psalm 68. He knows the context better than I do. He knows the context, you know, he knows very well what the context is. He knows what the end of the psalm says. He knows that God, by the end, gives power and strength to his people. So when he quotes it, he quotes it in a way that helps remind us both of what's happening in verse 18 and also what's happening in the rest of the psalm. And that's why it's called an echo, because Paul's using one verse to quote a whole psalm, the whole context of a psalm. So think about what happened in the psalm. You have uh, the powers at work in the people of Israel's life in a destructive way. You have God's deliverance from the powers of Egypt and then other powers later in the psalm. And then because of those past actions, you have a petition for God's further involvement in the lives of his people. And then the end by God giving strength and power to his people. So now let's think about what we've just seen in the book of Ephesians the last couple of weeks. Paul has just prayed for them to have what? Power. So they could understand the love of Christ. Have strength to understand the love of Christ. He prayed for them in chapter 1 to have an apocalypse to understand the calling and the hope that they have in Christ. So Paul in chapter 1 talks about how Jesus is seated above all the principalities and powers and all the powers in the world, right? And, and even in the heavenly places, he's above all the powers. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's read verses 8 through 10 again. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So in the first part of verse 8, Paul is taking this passage from Psalm 68. He's applying it to Jesus. The last phrase where it says he gave gifts to men is recalling the end of the psalm. Now in the original context, like I said, this was a a psalm of praise to the Father about what he did through Israel's history. In the new context, um, we see Jesus getting applied this, and he's now leading a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles from under the powers, and he's giving them a different group of gifts. So Paul is taking the original psalm, he's using it as an echo, so we understand the whole psalm is in view, and now he's also reapplying it to a new context. He's taking it from God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ, He's taking it from the specific context of the Exodus and the story of the people of God in the Old Testament, and he's reapplying it to the gospel message of Jews and Gentiles together coming into community through Christ and getting under the authority 
of the powers, the evil powers in all of the heavenly places. So it's a wild, there's a lot going on. Just in one verse, there's a whole lot going on. Um, so it takes a passage about God and it replies it to an agent of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to briefly talk about verses 9 and 10. There's also a lot of debate about verses 9 and 10, which is sort of Paul's trying to help us. You know, he knows that verse 8's hard for us, so he gives us two verses to try to make it clearer. Unfortunately, 2,000 years later, it's still not very easy for us to deal with verses 9 and 10. Uh, there are actually, I think, uh, something like five views on what the lower regions could mean uh, and what descending could mean, <laughs> something like that. Oh, man. There are three of them that I'm going to mention here, uh, including the lower regions being the earth itself in relation to the heavens. It could be a reference to his death or the grave. Uh, it could be the humiliating, specifically the humiliating death on the cross. Um, but I, I think the best take on this, at least for me, and you know, feel free to disagree with me, is that when it talks about him descending, that the ESV gets it right. It says that he descended into the lower regions, the earth, not the lower regions of the earth. So I think this is talking about him uh, coming down uh, to earth. And this reminds me of the language of the Gospel of John, which talks about bread coming down from heaven. You know, just because we say something comes from heaven, it uh, doesn't mean anything specific uh, theologically necessarily about that person's existence. Uh, Jesus came down from heaven just like the bread came down from heaven. Um, John the Baptist was also sent by God in John chapter 1. And so I think this, uh, him descending is a reference to his birth and his, uh, his life on earth and his ministry on earth. And then, of course, his ascension is his ascension that we see and read about in uh, the gospel, at the end of the gospels and in the book of Acts at the beginning. So that's the nerdy, difficult part for this morning. So hopefully you're still with me. Uh, let's read verses 11 through 16, which is uh, where we see more practical application here. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the first thing he does is he lists off these gifts that Christ is giving to the church in verse 11, and he mentions five of them. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, or pastors, and teachers. So I want to go through these really br briefly with you. Uh, an apostle, uh, people generally view them as two different types of apostles. There's like capital A apostles, and there were 12 of them. And then Judas died, and then they added another one, Matthias. Uh, but these were capital A apostles. They were with Jesus. There are only 12 of them. No more of those ever existed. <laughs> those, that's it. Those are all the apostles. Now, there are lowercase a apostles, and they generally were initiators of new churches and building new ministries. The Apostle Paul is a great example of that, although some of them would sort of fold Paul in with the 12, given how important he was. But whether we call him a capital A apostle or a lowercase a apostle, it doesn't really matter too much. Um, Junia is another example of this. She was listed at the end of Romans 16, and she's listed as being among the apostles. And I just point that out because... Um, a lot of people talk about how there are uh, specific genders that have to be for this specific list of gifts that Christ gives the church. And I just want to point out, and I pointed out last week, but I'll point out again here briefly, that um, when we get to chapter 5 and Paul says that we are to submit to one another in the church, however we want to view that submitting 
I know that's a negative a word with a negative connotation in our culture and society today. But however we view that submitting, it doesn't say, oh yeah, if you're an apostle, you don't have to submit. If you're a prophet, you don't have to submit. And it also never in the book of Ephesians gives us any gendering to any of these gifts. So the point I'm trying to make here is, is that, um, that these, uh, these ministries, these gifts, seem to be to be given to all sorts of people throughout the Bible, including men and women. The, the prophets, prophets are people who speak for God, uh, either by foretelling the future or telling forth uh, what God wants them to say, speaking forth the things that God wants to be said. When I think about a prophet, a New Testament prophet, I think of the prophet Agabus. If you want to go read in Acts chapter 11, uh, Agabus comes uh, to see Paul and the church community that he's building. He tells them that there is something going to happen in the future, this famine that's going to take place, and he asks for relief to be sent to the people in Jerusalem that will need that help. Uh, so Agabus was able to tell the future. And that famine, we, we find out in Acts 11, did come to pass. So Agabus was able to foretell the future and tell groups of people about it to get uh, resources to the community that was in need. That's a prophet. That's what a prophet does. Evangelists are people with uh, a strong uh, ability to share the gospel, uh, especially with outsiders. And if you want to think about an evangelist, the main listed evangelist in the Bible is Philip. And his highlight reel, if you want to call it, is in Acts chapter 8, where essentially he goes on a one-man mission to a, a huge city called Samaria. And he's like casting out demons, and he's teaching the gospel, and he's doing all this wild stuff, uh, essentially all by himself. <laughs> so that's a pretty wild account of what an evangelist can do. And there are people that are doing that all around the world today, which I find a beautiful thing. Pastors, uh, or shepherds, as it's translated in the ESV, uh, it's the shepherd who takes care of the people of God. Uh, Christ was called the good shepherd. Uh, David was a shepherd boy. Before he was a king, he was a shepherd. And the Bible talks about uh, shepherds throughout the scripture, good shepherds and bad shepherds. And Christ uh, gives good shepherds just like he is a good shepherd. And then teachers. Teacher is something easier for us. It's someone who's able to communicate God's truth to others in a practical way. So um, I just want to point out real quick here, uh, I don't know if I put it on the slide or not, um, but Apollos, when Apollos was taught, he was taught more fully by two people. Uh, one of them was a man, and one of them was a woman. Aquila and Priscilla both had a ministry, at least in that moment, of teaching Apollos. So I want to give a quick comment before we move on from verse 11, um, that I, I have the office, what I would call the office of a pastor. And I, I'm, what I'm about to say is going to sound weird to you, but I, I hope you understand what I'm saying. Uh, I have the office of a pastor. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily a gifted pastor. That's not necessarily the gift that I have. I may have another one of these gifts. I may have none of these gifts in Ephesians 4.11. Um, and so I want to I distinguish here for a moment between the office having the job, essentially, of being a pastor and then having the gifting of being a pastor. There are people in our church that may have these giftings that may not have the offices. There may be people that have the offices that don't have the gifting. So both things can happen inside of a church community. And I pray, and I know that there are other people who pray, you know, Jerry and others, that pray that these types of giftings will grow and develop in our congregation, whether they have the office or don't have the office. And then it's our responsibility in church leadership to encourage those things and grow those things over time. And of course, we know that our church is a small microcosm of the larger body of Christ, and there are people with these giftings all over the place in the body of Christ. 
And we pray for those gifts to be manifested as well, all around the body. So the purpose of these gifts, as it says in verse 12, is so that they would equip the people of God for the work of ministry. And the word that is used here, the word equip, is used in other Greek writings to discuss the setting of bones. And Paul's in the context here of using head language and body language. So think about a, a, a surgeon or somebody repairing bones. That's what the, the language is here. Uh, so it's medical language, and I think it definitely fits the context. So after the leaders in verse 12 equip the saints, which is everyone, everyone in the church community for the work of ministry, the last part of this verse is to be understood as the whole church together in action. So the whole church together in action builds up the body of Christ. We all together do the work of building up the body of Christ. So again, the gifts are not to uh, lord over everyone else. They're not to dominate everyone else. Um, They are not excluded from that mutual submission in Ephesians chapter 5. So a healthy view of these gifts is that Christ gives the church these gifts of grace The people who have these gifts did nothing to deserve them. And then those that have those gifts, they serve, they minister, they serve the body of Christ, and they help to mend people. That's their responsibility. Then when people are mended, then they can do the work that it says at the very end of verse 12, building up the body of Christ. Then finally, verse 13 gives us the timing for all of this. Uh, We do this until Christ returns. This is the process that the church goes through until Christ returns. Christ will keep giving these gifts until he returns, and there will always be mending work to do and bones that need to be reset and things that need to be helped with these ministries, helping other people. And there's always more to build up with this body. This body is continuing to grow. And so we do this until Christ returns. When Christ returns, we will have the things that it talks about in verse 13. We will have unity of the faith which we could talk about, that's where we would think about doctrinal unity. You know, all the seven ones will be completely seven ones again. We'll all be on the same page on those things. Um, we will have, uh, Christ will be a mature man. He will, the body of Christ will be a mature body, and we will grow up into him. Let's read verses 14 and 15 again. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So verse 14 gives us a pretty uh, interesting mind picture, whether we choose to take it together or separately. So I have a couple pictures here that we can post on the wall here. Here's a group of children. So the first way we can think about these is to examine these images separately. Paul doesn't want us to remain children. We all are children in the faith at some point, and God wants us to mature into grown believers. So as cute as these children are, and they are adorable, aren't they? As cute as they are, we don't want to stay here spiritually. We want to grow up and mature. I know I tell my son Liam, who's seven now, uh, that he can stop growing at any point. You know, he can just stop right there. You know, he's, he's gotten big enough. And he always tells me, Daddy, I can't stop growing. <laughs> and so that's my heart for you spiritually, is for someone to go to you and say, hey, you need to stop growing spiritually. And you say, nope, I can't stop growing spiritually. That's, well, I'm, I'm going to be a mature person one of these days. Uh, the second image we have is the image of 
uh, a boat on a sea, and I couldn't find a small, I mean, this is a big boat. This is way bigger than the boats in the ancient world. So just imagine that that boat is way smaller than that in a sea that's sort of like this or maybe even rougher. So that's a pretty rough situation to be in, right? Tough to be in a small boat in the middle of a big storm. But what Tim Mackey pointed out is that we can sort of combine these images together. So imagine we have a small boat in a big storm, and the crew on that ship is Sophia and Evelyn and Isaac and Valerie, right? I mean, it's funny, right? But, but if we think about it for a moment, like seriously, like if that's the crew on a ship, a small boat in the middle of a big storm, that's terrifying, isn't it? It's a terrifying image. And so that's what we don't want to be anymore. We don't want to be small little children on a small boat in the middle of a big storm. And that's what can happen to us in life uh, when we get carried about by those winds of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness. And that end of verse 14, it recalls the exact group of people that we talked about last week that we cannot experience unity with. Remember we talked about how there are certain people that we cannot maintain the unity with, and that is because they're not putting on those five virtues. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and love. So if they're not doing those five virtues, we can't maintain unity with them. Frequently, those are the people who are doing these things. They're going about trying to blow people about with every wind of doctrine. They're going about by their own human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Those are the people that we are to avoid. So verse 15 highlights the alternative to being these small children on the boat in the storm. The alternative to that is by speaking or living the truth in love. And by doing that, we grow up into the head, into Christ. And this is the mind picture where I got the name for the sermon, where we grow the body to fit the head. Who is the head? Jesus. Is he mature or is he a baby? He's mature. Is the body mature or is it a baby? Is it still growing? It's still growing. So imagine, I, didn't, I couldn't find a good image on this that I could get that was license-free, but imagine a baby body with a Middle Eastern man with a beard's head on it. That's what the body of Christ looked like in this time. It was a brand new baby body with a mature Jesus head. That's the letter he's writing. That's the image that he's mentioning here. And you know, babies do have big heads and smaller bodies proportionally, but I'm telling you, this image, it should jolt us to have a baby, little doughy baby body, and then a mature Middle Eastern man's head on it. But that's the picture that we're getting here. And so the point that Paul's making here is that as the body grows, as it grows and grows and grows, once we get a teenager body and a Middle Eastern man with a full beard on it, that looks a little bit better, right? It looks a little bit more proportional by that point, right? And when the body is 30, 35 years old and it has the Jesus head on it, now it looks completely perfect, right? And so over time, the body of Christ is growing and developing, and it's growing up more and more and more, and it's aging. And I don't know if the body of Christ is 5 or if it's 10 or if it's 35 and he's about to return. I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know that the image that he's using is of a body, a baby body with an adult head on it, Jesus' head on it. So as a community, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we grow up? We do it by, by speaking the truth in love or as it really is living the truth in love. 
And I know that we generally view this word truth in a general context, but I think um, our friend Lynn Kohick, who uh, wrote the New International Commentary on the New Testament, she's right to point out here that the truth that Paul has in mind is the same gospel message that he's been talking about in Ephesians 1 through 3, what we call Ephesians 1 through 3. So the truth here, the living the truth is living the gospel message, and living the gospel message to them meant Jews and Gentiles, one body, not fighting anymore. How poignant is that message today? So the body grows up and and grows together through the truth relating to the wonderful unity that God is forming through and in the church. I want to read a quote from Arthur Patzia. He says, From the negative, the apostle returns to the positive direction that the church is to take. A divided church is characterized by rivalry, suspicion, hatred, pride, selfishness, lack of direction, and so forth. Instead, he pleads that the church should be characterized by the qualities of truth and love, speaking the truth in love. Literally, the phrase should be translated truthing in love because there is no verb in the Greek text for speaking. And the essential meaning is that truth needs to be conveyed in love and not by deceit and craftiness. He goes on later, that truthing in love suggests the idea of living out the truth in a spirit of love. Some congregations may have all the truth, but no love. Others may have considerable love, but no truth. What is needed is a combination and balance between the two. Then he quotes another commentator named Stott. He says, Stott makes a fitting and astute statement on this point when he writes, Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together. There is no other route than this to fully matured Christian unity. So we need truth and we need love. We need the gospel message and we need how to apply it in community. So let's read verse 16 now. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So verse 16 talks a little bit more and closes the section with a little bit more about the responsibility of the head and the responsibility of the body. The head here is the source of life for the body. And there's a lot, um, there's a lot of debate about what the word head means. Um, the Greek word that the, that's used for the word head in the ancient world uh, it did not mean authority. We usually think like the head of a company or we, we think of authority behind it, uh, but that's not what it meant. It would either mean the physical head, like the head on your body. It could mean head as a source, like head as a source of the river, or head as the most prominent feature. Like when you walk in a room, the first thing I see is I see your face, I see your head. Um, so here, Christ as the head is the source of life. He's the one who provides life to the church. Um, he provides life and gifts and ministries so that the body can grow and, and be edified. The body's responsibility is to respond to that life-giving and to grow and, and to work properly. So this means uh, that every individual in the body has a role to play and has a job to do. And again, we find that the key virtue to help this growth take place is love. So as we close, we can think about the four layers of interpretation. What does this mean for our lives? Uh, like we've been going through this whole section, uh, this whole uh, book, this whole letter. Um, we cannot just pick up this book and just read it and just immediately apply it to our lives without thinking about it a couple more times uh, because it was a letter written to a different group of people halfway around the world 2,000 years ago. So we've been talking about what it meant to them, how they would have applied it, then what it means to us and how we can apply it. 
We've already looked at what the text meant to them, so how would they have applied it? In the original context of Ephesians, the original audience would have understood Jesus as the head of the body in a different way than we immediately do. You know, we immediately think authority, we immediately think a couple different things. They would have understood, especially in this context, it meant source. They would have seen Jesus in this passage as the source of life for the body. He gives gifts and he provides help to his people. And they would have appreciated the idea that Christ uh, is working through and in the church and helping everyone grow together in love. What does the text mean to us? Well, just as we reflected last week on the fact that we cannot uh, base our unity on doctrinal agreement, uh, we find more to anchor that idea here. There is a coming day when we will attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. But until that day, we do not have perfect unity, especially doctrinally. So what we can do is we can focus that Christ has given and continues to give gifts to the church. He continues to give ministers as gifts to the church. And different ministers have different functions and abilities. But the goal of all the gifts that Christ is giving to the church is to help people in the congregation to heal up and to be ready to serve others in love. So the job of the head is to supply growth in life. The job of each member in the body is to respond by growing and living and working properly, as it says at the end of the passage in verse 16. So next week, we're going to continue looking at the specific ways that we can do that. Uh, Our brother, Reverend Jerry Weller, will be sharing with us next week about how we can build on this foundation of uh, speaking the truth or living the truth in love together, what that looks like in very practical ways. I know I was very vague today, but he's going to get very specific next week uh, with the do's and the do nots that Paul lays out for us. So let's pray. Father, we're so thankful this morning for uh, everything that you've accomplished for us through Christ. We're thankful that he is still at work, that he is supplying ministries to us, to our community, to other faith communities around Louisville, to other faith communities around the world, Father. We're so thankful for that for how active he is, how present he is, for how he supplies that life, how you've given him the authority and the ability to do that. And so, Father, we're so thankful for that. We pray that you would continue to grow the ministries in our small church, that you would continue to raise up people who have these ministries, um, that you would help us to see where people are developing in these categories, God, and that we can encourage that with your help. Father, we Pray for the community around us, for the Louisville community, for the gifts in those churches being manifested and purified and strengthened through your love and your power. And Father, we ask for that around the world too, that you would continue to, uh, to help us, to help the whole body of Christ grow up together into a mature person so that our body, this body, can, can fit the head that we have, the perfect head that we have, that you can keep growing us up. So, Father, we thank you for that this morning, for your help in all those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslou.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.